And now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of the KCRW Public Radio program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 until 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here at Sokolo and to be here with the first guest ever of Sokolo's. I didn't know that until a moment ago. I'm particularly uh, proud and happy to uh, enjoy this distinction. Adrian Woldridge, uh, very briefly, is the Economist's political editor. He also writes the Badgett column uh, in the, in the uh, Economist, which is an analysis of British life and politics, which is what he's most concerned about at the moment. But of course, uh, as we know, uh, he has, was previously based in Washington. He was the Economist Washington Bureau Chief, and he was here in Los Angeles as West Coast Bureau Chief at one point as well. We knew each other then, some years ago. Uh, he also, of course, is the co-author, and I think this is the main subject tonight, of, with former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan of the new book, Capitalism in America, a History. Uh, give a big hand for Adrian Woolridge. I want to talk about the book, but uh, what's interesting is the two of you together, and you were telling me earlier that uh, you had never met Alan Greenspan, uh, and it was actually because you had the same publisher that you got together. That's absolutely right. We, had, uh, we shared an ed editor in common who's uh, a chap called Scott Moyers at Penguin, who'd edited all of Greenspan's books and many of my books, and he saw a synergy there. Um, and so we got together, Greenspan interviewed me um, on the subject, I think, of Adam Smith, to make sure that I had the right views on Adam Smith. Um, and I was at the time actually at the Edinburgh Festival, um, and he was very impressed that I should be at the Edinburgh Festival. So I passed my interview, and so we, we sat down together and wrote the book. So he thought then that you knew enough about American politics, American economics, rather, to uh, share the uh, the book, which is called Capitalism in America. Yeah, one of the things that we uh, that recommended me to him, I think, is I'd uh, previously written a book um, which was called uh, the The Company, a short history of a revolutionary idea, which was indeed the subject of my Zocalo presentation when I was the first person uh, talking at Zocalo. So yes, so I had that. Um, that thing, although I'm not an economist um, by training, I'm, I'm a historian by training, but I got very interested at some time in the 1990s, I can't remember why, in the history of the corporation. So that's, that's one of the things that brought us together. Well, it is a history, but it also seems to me it's an argument, and earlier you referred to it as a thesis. So I'll let you describe what the thesis is, but it seems to me that what it's really calling for uh, if you can uh, be comfortable with this phrase, is making America great again. <laughs> that's exactly right. No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the thesis... Uh, the book starts off with a sort of thought experiment, which is if... Um, imagine that the world's most important people uh, gathered together at at beating of Davos in 1619. This is Davos week, all these important people um, uh, at Davos this week. Um, we, of course, aren't important. That's why we're here. Um, 
And but um, imagine all the world's most important people uh, meeting in Davos <laughs> four centuries ago, 1619, uh, and you have um, the subject of discussion at Davos is who will dominate the world in the future. And you have somebody from China, and they make a very good case that it will be China. Um, and um, you know, the, the world's greatest civil service, the world's greatest empire, the world's biggest encyclopedia, the world's most learned scholars. Uh, somebody else is from Turkey, and they make a good case that it's Turkey. Turkey is a, the greatest Islamic uh, center. It's expanding uh, into Europe. Somebody from Spain makes a very good case that it's going to be Spain. Since their, you know, their colonization is uh, successful, they're a big, vibrant civilization. Somebody else makes um, an eccentric but interesting case that it's actually going to be Britain that's going to dominate the world. Britain has just broken with this terrible, ossified European continent. It's created parliamentary democracy. It's created the joint stock company. Um, but nobody in this imaginary conversation would ever mention the United States. In 1618, the, the United States was an irrelevancy in the world. It was an afterthought. Um, in great power politics. It's um, uh, probably produced less than the average German principality. Um, it just really didn't matter that much. Today, um, America, with 5% of the world's population, produces 25% of the world's GDP. It is ahead in a very large proportion of the world's most dynamic, creative, forward-looking uh, industries from IT to um, supercomputing, to biochemistry. 15 of the world's top 20 universities are all located in the United States, which indicates it has the sort of infrastructure that it needs to remain ahead in brain-intensive uh, areas. So the rise of the United States over the last four centuries is the most remarkable story of the last four centuries and the most unexpected story of the last four centuries. And what the book tries to do is explain why America did indeed become great. Then, towards the end, it says that that greatness may be fading. We'll get to the end of that yeah. at the end of our conversation. Um, one of the things you talk about, I don't know if this is the appropriate phrase for the thesis that you make, but uh, certainly you spend a lot of time talking about creative destruction. Sure. Uh, and you say that uh, the reason that America has been so successful is uh, that it has uh, been very fortunate in the way that it has been able to accomplish creative destruction. So uh, tell us what that is in, in your mind, and then also why you say that trying to sell it is a hard sell. Sure. Well, creative destruction is a phrase that was conjured up by Joseph Schumpeter in his great book, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, in 1942. And for him, it's a sort of metaphor. Um, he talks about a gale of creative destruction, which blows through the economy, flattening old things. Um, uh, but it is also an economic analysis in the sense that what it says Creative destruction is the relentless process of shifting activities to more productive areas, from areas which are old and dying uh, to areas which are growing and producing a better return on investment. So moving from um, horse buggies to motor cars or from um, iron to steel um, is an example of creative destruction. And the essence of, Trump, of Schumpeter's uh, idea is that you have to be willing to embrace 
to, 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 you have to be willing to move away from one way of organizing work, one way of organizing production, um, to another different way. And that, that is a wrenching and difficult process. It's not something that you naturally do. Naturally, the world is in a state of sort of stasis, and it's only, big, big, it's only through force uh, and only through, I, I mean, physical force, it's only through some sort of uh, push. You need to push people to change. And that um, America has always been better than other countries around the world at embracing creative destruction. It's, it's, it's a dynamic, it's a fundamentally dynamic uh, civilization. And the question that we try and answer in this book is why? Why has America been better at these things? Um, and I would say part of the answer lies in the sheer size of the country. Um, you know, it's, it's a big place. I lived in America, I think I, I lived in America from 1997 to 2010. And when I went back to England, people asked me, you know, what I'd learned in all those years about America. And I, I said, my basic conclusion was it's a very big country. You know? <laughs> um, and that means that, you know, you could, you know, you can be careless about things in the way that Britain is a very small, densely populated country. Um, and you're not very careless about moving people or moving industries. You tend to be very uh, conservative about these things. America is careless. You know, America is, is Americans and American, Americans as people and American businesses uproot themselves and move from one place to another. And you get the rust belt decaying and then you get the sun belt rising. And I remember one phrase from the, 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 the Times in uh, the London Times in 1867, saying that American um, railroads um, went from nowhere in particular to, to, to nowhere at all. You know, you're building <laughs> in, in all of this wilderness. Um, so that, 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 that size, I think, has helped the process of creative destruction. I also think that America is one of the very few countries that was actually created in the period of capitalism, in the period... America was founded, uh, the Civil War, uh, the, the, the War of Independence was a year after the publication of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, 1776. So it was born into a dynamic, uh, business-friendly, um, entrepreneurial civilization. Most other countries, you know, even the countries that have embraced capitalism have had, have had a long overhang of of feudal aristocratic attitudes and relationships. America hasn't had this. So those, those two things, um, I think the size of the country and the newness of the country have, have been very important um, in embracing creative destruction. I also think that the Constitution, the nature of the Constitution, has put very strict limits on what governments can do. It's said that governments basically uh, you know, it's enumerated rights that individuals have, including the right to property and intellectual property, very important. Uh, and it's created this bizarre Madisonian mechanism of, of power, which tends, you know, checks and balances, limit the power of the, uh, 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 the government in Washington. And I think that's, in the long term, been very creative for the country. America hasn't, like many European countries, embraced a massive and very interventionist state. And that means that the work of creative destruction has been free to take place. And as I say, it's a, often a very ugly, um, destabilizing thing, creative destruction. You use the word entrepreneurialism. Yeah. And entrepreneurialism is one of the things that you stress. And in fact... Uh, you are so admi uh, admiring of entrepreneurs that you have renamed the robber barons 
and called them the Titans. What's the significance of that? Well, I think there are two things that the United States had which really drove a lot of its um, expansion, a lot of its success. Uh, one was great entrepreneurs, um, and the other was great corporations. Uh, and America has been very, very good at mass-producing entrepreneurs. A, entrepreneurs, I think, tend not to be very nice people. I, I, unless there are any in this room, and the ones in this room are very nice people indeed, but entrepreneurs tend to be... They, they have what, what we call in this book a sort of an imperialism of the soul. They're very discontented people. They want to, they want to create something out of nothing. Um, they tend to be sort of fairly odd. If you look at the, 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 the great robber barons like Rockefeller, they were strange people. Carnegie was not quite so strange. Um, but um, a lot of them have been... What was so no, strange about Rockefeller? He was a cold, icy... He had ice flowing in his veins, and he was obsessed by this imperialism of the soul. And then, you know, he wasn't obviously strange. And then you've got Henry Ford, who was round a twist. I mean, was very, very, very mad. Tell us more about about Ford. I mean, yeah. well, well, Ford was um, had appalling views about uh, Jewish people, of course, but he also had this sort of a notion that he could. He tried to just to end the the the, the first world war um, by just getting in a boat and going out there to tell people to stop fighting. Um, he believed that he could do that, you know, and they tend to be people who don't set limits to themselves and don't acknowledge limits, which is why they can create great companies out of, out of nothing. So America has been very good at creating these entrepreneurs, I think partly because of the tradition of immigrants, of immigration. A very dis large number of uh, entrepreneurs have, have, have been immigrants, the children of, uh, of immigrants, uh, and partly because the culture um, celebrates entrepreneurialism. So if you're... Um, French, um, basically the ideal that you work towards, what you really want to be is a guy who sits in cafes talking about the meaning of life and smoking cigarettes. Uh, if you're British, you want to have a huge country estate and horses and all of those sorts of things. If you're German, you want to be a scholar. And in America, what you really want to be is an entrepreneur. And in Britain, when you are an entrepreneur, eventually you will sell out and become the landed landed person because that's that's what respectability here. There's nothing higher than being an entrepreneur. So you get you want to get bigger and bigger and bigger, like Bezos. You know, there's no limit to your ambition. So America has produced these incredibly dynamic, disequilibrating dis, dis figures who see the world and change it. So they want to change it. They have dreams and they want to change it. Um, imperialists, as, as, as I say, you know, they, they want to, to force everything according to their will. Uh, and the second thing America has been exceptionally good at creating has been corporations. And the role of corporations in creating economic growth is absolutely fundamental. And it's something that we accept as being normal because we live in a society with millions of corporations, but it's not normal. Um, it's um, historically very peculiar. For most of history, corporations, the privilege of limited liability has been restricted to a very small body of corporations that did what the, what the country wanted them to do. So it built, they built bridges, they, um, they built canals, and they had to go to the government and say, can I, can I do this? And the government would say yes. So every time they wanted to engage in a piece of work that, uh, and, en and, and engage in something which they were to have the privilege of limited liability for, they had to get permission for it. And America was the first country to say, no, you don't need to get permission for it. You can create companies, you can have limited liability, and that's fine. You can do whatever you want. 
don't go to the government. Do, you know, it's a general purpose company that can do anything. And that happens in America in the 1830s before anybody else in the world, the British start doing it in the 1850s. So they get a head start with these extraordinary organizations which allow people to bring together workers and bring together um, uh, capital uh, and coordinate economic activity through the purpose of the, through the vehicle of the corporation. And then, having built these corporations, um, it then built very, very big corporations. So you've got lots of corporations by the mid uh, 19th century, but then by the end of the 19th century, you've got the world's biggest companies, huge organizations which operate on the size on a size which private sector organizations have never op operated on before. And America uniquely bring, builds these things. So a lot of people think that the the American genius is a genius for individualism. It's not just a genius for individualism; it's a genius for for cooperation through these strange mechanisms of. Uh, of companies, which are essentially, you know, the word company means, comes from Latin meaning company, bringing, breaking bread together. They're very social organizations. They're coordinating organizations. So it's these two sizes, sides of things, individualism on the one hand and collective pursuit of ends on the other hand that America's been very good at. Well, let's talk about a bit, a bit about the downside. When <laughs> you have creative uh, destruction, sure. you have destruction. Yeah, sure. And you're supposed to embrace destruction as well as uh, the creativity. And yet, yeah. uh, sometimes the destruction seems very difficult to embrace. Tell us a little bit about how uh, some of the titans, as you refer to them, uh, Rockefeller and others, uh, ran into problems with destruction. Well, um, you have to have destruction. Um, and that destruction is very painful, particularly for the people who are being destroyed. And what you were doing with the, with the Titans was creating gigantic companies which drove smaller and less efficient companies out of business. And so both um, Carnegie and Rockefeller are moving towards a position whereby they have about 90% of, of the market. So that means a lot of people being uh, driven out of business. And they're driven out of business not through various appalling illegal acts primarily, although there are various appalling illegal acts going on, but they're driven out of business primarily because both Rockefeller and Carnegie are creating industrial machines that are much, much more efficient than anybody else's. They're cutting prices, they're cutting costs uh, all the time. So the cost of steel, the average of a unit of steel goes down by about 90% between 1860 and 1900. Um, so anybody who can't compete with Carnegie is bankrupt, is driven out of business. Um, and so this is, this is done partly just by economies of scale, um, but also by relentless innovation, by embracing new technology. Um, and one of the things that Carnegie is, does, for example, is he builds an extraordinary huge uh, steelworks in the 1880s, I think, and then it's his pride and joy, this steelworks. Then he goes around and then he sees somebody else has built a new, better steelworks with a new technique, and he immediately goes and tears down his old steelworks, his new steelworks, and builds a new one, incorporating this method. So they're constantly looking for new technological innovations, and even if they're not forced to, they will embrace those innovations to try and reduce reduce costs. So that's you know for all of the small uh, entrepreneurs, that's a that's a huge cost. So what we see in this period. People like Carnegie and Rockefeller are very, very anti-laissez-faire 
um, economics. They think laissez-faire is for the fools. They think that the idea that you have free-floating individuals in markets competing with each other is nonsense. They think the future lies with massive organizations which can reduce unit costs, and they go about destroying their competitors and creating these massive organizations. So that's hard on them. It's hard on their competitors. But also they're very, very hard on their workers because one of the things that happens in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s is a period of deflation, a long period of deflation. So the costs of things are going down. So people are getting richer in, in, in the sense that things that, that they buy are getting cheaper. Um, but this confronts Carnegie in particular with the problem of, well, if, if, if costs are going down, what do you do about wages? So he starts driving wages down. He starts reducing wages. And that is not a, re it's not a reduction in real wages, but it's a reduction in nominal wages. And as Keynes talks about the stickiness of not nominal wages, these people are having their, wa their actual wages cut, and this creates massive industrial uh, unrest and very violent conflicts um, with, 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 with steelworks, for which Carnegie, who's, of course builds himself as a great friend of the working man, spends all that time in England, in Scotland. He's looking after his, his, his affairs there, so he's not part of that. He lets Frick take the, take the blame for that. But yeah, there's, 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 there's a lot of people suffering in that sense, not because they're actually getting poorer, but because they feel nominally that they're getting poorer. So you're very much against government regulation. Uh, and what else, how else do you protect the people uh, who are caught up in the destruction. And we've seen this again and again and again. We're seeing it now, it seems to me. And uh, there hasn't been real wage increase in this country since the last recession. Uh, there's an enormous concentration of wealth at the top. 4% of the sure. people have 40% of the wealth or whatever the figure may yep. be. It depends who's doing the calculation. Um, so what's wrong with government regulation? What other possible mechanism is there to protect the victims of this destruction that you embrace? Well, I'm not sure that I am completely against uh, government regulation. I, I would sort of weasel out of this by saying I'm in favor of wise and sensible regulation and against <laughs> foolish regulation. Uh, I think regulation that sort of tries to create minimum wages and fixed wages tends to result in higher unemployment and more mechanization, so it doesn't ultimately benefit people. But I am very much in favor of certain forms of regulation um, that would, for example, break up uh, undue monopolies. Um, um, so um, I would say that um, once you get extreme degrees of concentration, I think we do have that in the United States at the moment. I think there is a case for, for anti-monopoly regulation. I also think there's, it's very important to regulate the, 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 the financial industry. You've just got to do it sensibly rather than fool, foolishly. And I think that at the moment we're not doing it that sensibly. Well, that's a relatively recent sure. uh, issue, the financialization sure. of the economy. Sure. But how is it that regulation uh, creates mechanization and lowers wages? How well, well so if, if, if you legislate to um, raise people's wages, then you provide work, you provide any employer with an incentive to mechanize them out of existence, those jobs out of existence. So um, just because it costs more to employ people, so you may end up reducing the number um, of jobs. I would say, but what, what you see, we're talking now, let's, let's say we're talking about the late 19th century. Um, and there's a lot of government action, which is very sensible, that goes on. And there's a, a, lot, a big process. Teddy of, Roosevelt. 
uh, Teddy Roosevelt is very keen on breaking up giant companies, although he talks more about it than actually doing it. Um, he was busy hunting. He was busy doing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things, but he 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 does he does that. Then the Federal Reserve is established because you must a bit up up until 1912, you didn't have a central bank. So whenever you got a big financial crisis, and they got a lot of financial crises, uh, you basically had to get somebody like J.P. Morgan to come along and solve it. And what he tended to do is to get a collection of his rich friends, lock them in a room, and force them to to solve those problems. But you also have the movements of sanitation, good governments urban governments um, in that period, which is clearly a, a, a very benign thing. So I, I, I'm speaking for Anne Greenspan here, but, 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 but you know, I would definitely not say that what you want to have for a successful capitalist economy is no state. I mean, you need to have um, a very active state in lots of ways because capitalism depends on certain rules being enforced. It depends on the provision of certain public goods and it depends it depends on you know the market um, acting well, and the market doesn't always act well. If it gets if you get too much concentration, it won't. So you know the, the state absolutely is is vital to it, and of course the money supply is vital. Let's there. go back to the corporation. Yeah. In, uh, in the forties, I yeah. believe it was there was an article in Fortune magazine which had a tremendous influence, saying that every corporation had social responsibility, and that the corporations, the leaders of the corporations, had to be. Uh, a concern not only about their customers, but and making their pro progress a product uh, as as good as it could as they could, but also about their workers and about the impact they were having on the society. Then there was uh, subsequently in 1990, 1991, an article in the New York Times by Milton Friedman. I think you mentioned it in your book, okay. who said that the only responsibility of a corporate manager is to the shareholders. There is no other responsibility at all. Anything else is socialism. Do you agree with that? <laughs> Do I agree with that? Um, that's an extremely probing and difficult question. I would say that um, the way that um, that the way that this doctrine has developed recently has not been good. I think that it's encouraged too much short-termism. It's encouraged too much short-term greed, um, and it hasn't worked to produce great companies. I think one of the things that, if you if you go back to um, the sort of golden age of American capitalism, one of the things that you had was a collection of really first-class companies, and you're, you're talking about the period in the in the 19, 1940s. And what those companies tended to do was to focus on long-term investments and focus on creating a customer um, and focus on uh, things other than just short-term share prices. Um, and that produced, I think, if you, you know, up, American capitalism, which was essentially a very managerial form of capitalism, was incredibly successful in the 1950s and 1960s um, and produced uh, a lot of great companies with a lot of great products and very stable relations with their, with their workers, sort of not quite family relations, but almost on that, on that model. Um, but the reason that you got the breakdown of, not, of, of that was not because of what Milton Friedman said. What, the reason you got a breakdown of that is because those companies became lethargic 
they became self-indulgent. They became, having had all these benefits of sitting on top of the world, um, they, um, they lost their cutting edge. So it was really, but in the 1970s, um, when you had um, global competition in steel and global competition in, in the car industry, those companies were really, really hurt very badly. And they were hurt very badly, not because people were rigging global markets, but because the, the steel was overpriced and the cars weren't really very good. Um, so I'm not arguing in favour of uh, Friedmanite short-termism, but I'm saying that there was also a dark side of that very stable long-term period of managerial capitalism, which worked incredibly well in the 1950s, that it became became too self-indulgent. So you needed to give um, the the system a shock. Well, you got a shock from, from, from globalization. And so uh, as a result of that, the car companies and the steel companies got a lot better. Um, but I'm not sure that the short-term is manipulating stock prices to make CEOs incredibly rich. That's not good capitalism either. Well, there's a lot of that going on no, here, yes. and yeah. uh, hedge funds, for example. If you're responding to the hedge funds, mm-hmm. the hedge funds are interested in the yeah. short term. Uh, you're not uh, worried all that much about the basic nature of the company and doing long-term uh, research. So should there be regulation against that? Well, I would say that, that one of the glories of American capitalism is, is diversity, um, and that when you have private equity, for example. Private equity takes a long-term view of the company. So you've, you've got a stock market and, 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 and quarterly returns and constant pressure from the, the stock market, um, which works quite well for quite a lot of companies, but not all of them. But you've also, in the United States, had um, a way of funding companies, um, not through the stock market, but through, but, but through private equity industries, which created Silicon Valley, and the rest of it. So you've ha- you've, you, you have a diversity of, 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 of mechanisms of, of, of corporate uh, creation. So um, I think that it's not, it's, you know, you, you actually had in Silicon Valley something that's not a monument to, to, to short-termism, it's actually a monument to patient capital in various ways. So are the leaders of the companies in Silicon Valley... Um, the latest titans? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 if you look at the comparison between um, the robber barons of the late 19th century and the current bunch of people in Silicon Valley, it's extraordinary um, how close the, the, the comparisons are. For example, this, this, I've talked about the imperialism of the soul, have exactly the same thing, that these people see no limit to their ambition, you know, death, that's a minor thing that they're going to they're going to solve. So they have this 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 notion of changing and transforming the world for the better. They're people who've grasped that the material basis of civilization is changing. So in the 19th century, you've got the rise of oil and steel and cars and cars in the beginning of the 20th century. With them, it's it's artificial intelligence and 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 and, and silicon, and the rest of it. And you have also the same huge degree of corporate control that that Carnegie and Rockefeller, um, and uh, Macy and the rest of them and Ford basically controlled their companies themselves. And you have exactly the same thing. Um, with, with with Zuckerberg and 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 and, and um, the rest of them owning huge shares, huge proportions of their shares uh, in companies. Um, 
so, and again, with market pushing down prices, as I said earlier, both oil and steel, the prices come down by about 90%, exactly the same things coming down with the computer, the cost of computers have come down, silicon chips have come down absolutely massively, and massive market shares. Um, so I think, yes, these, these, these are a reincarnation of that. And I say, if, we, if, if America does have this extraordinary ability, not just to produce great entrepreneurs and great companies, but to keep doing so with every new technological wave. Um, and again, that's, that's creative destruction because they're destroying a lot, they're, they're, they're creating a lot, but it seems to be in the American DNA to do that. Whether we like these, this or not is a different question. Um, well, let's talk about the destruction that they do yeah. and uh, whether or not it's possible to have, as you suggested earlier, a reasonable, intelligent uh, regulation. Every time there's a hearing uh, about uh, Google or uh, Apple or one of the others, it's pretty obvious that uh, those that we elect to the Congress don't understand them very well. Um, who does understand them very well? Is it possible? Uh, to uh, regulate these companies, or is it possible that they'll get out of control? Well, one of the things that most worries me about these, lots of things worry me about these companies, I mean, I find the, the notion of, of uh, surveillance capitalism, the idea that they know what I want and what I'm doing before I know what I want and what I'm doing, I find that extremely disturbing um, because it clashes with liberal individualism, um, which should be the essence of, you know, individualism and free choice should be the essence of a, of a liberal society. And that, that, that sort of data, knowledge, mining and information very much worries me. But there is another thing which is not really to do with the functionings of, uh, of the market, but rather the perversion of the functioning of the market, which is the extent to which they're buying politicians. Now, of course, you you bought politicians, not you, but, uh, but people bought politicians in the late 19th century. So somebody says... There's a rich so, so, tradition. Of uh, there's a very politicians. rich tradition in, in, in America. Who was it who said, 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 said that, um, you, you know, that, that, that Rockefeller um, you basically bought and controlled every single local um, legislature, then moved on to the, the, to the national legislature. Um, and of course, one would never accuse um, these people of buying these things. But let it be said that almost everybody that I knew in Washington when I was there between between 2000 and, and 2010 on the Democratic side now seems to work for one of these one of these companies. They've all the revolving door between between the Democratic Party and, and, and these companies is 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 quite a, extraordinary. So they they have a lot of influence, and I think. Um, academic research, um, one of the biggest funders of academic research into antitrust and um, questions of antitrust is Google. So there's, there's, a huge, there's a huge sense in which they're, they're spending a lot of money getting the sort of, uh, the sort of results that, that they want. And I, th I, I find that certainly uh, a little bit disconcerting. So you're concerned and worried uh, about what might happen next. Uh, what do you think are the major weaknesses now in the American economy, and are they weaknesses that uh, we can control? Yeah, well, you started off by asking me about making America great again. Um, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's, um, that, is, that is a problem. What's happened over the last couple of decades, certainly since the financial crisis, but actually beginning before the financial crisis, is that the rate of productivity growth 
uh, in the United States has been very disappointing. It's been very slow. And productivity growth ultimately is what really matters because it's productivity growth that makes us richer uh, and productivity growth that creates a, you know, an abundant, successful society. And the rate of productivity growth is, has, has, is much lower than it was in the, in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, and 70s. Um, and um, it start, as I say, it started before the financial crisis, enormously um, accelerated or slowed down more by the, by the, by the financial crisis. And um, I think that this slow productivity growth, this great stagnation, is what lies behind um, most of many of America's problems. Now, there are the financial system, the collapse of the financial system was one big reason for it. I think uh, badly designed... Does have any responsibility for that? I'm not going to answer that. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, sure, of course. Yes, you know, he was, he was in an important position. He underestimated the, 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 the extent of irrationality in human behaviour. And I think he's, he's, he, he's admitted that. Um, I think that badly designed regulation has had a, a, a huge problem because you've had this massive multiplicity of, of, of regulations. Um, and I think that um, a poorly designed uh, entitlement system, which um, encourages people to retire before they should, should retire and which shovels too much money um, towards maintaining older retired people, baby boomers essentially, um, and not enough towards building infrastructure, building roads, investing in education, you're investing in the wrong things, um, is, is a huge problem for, for the future. And this slowdown of productivity growth um, is what has ultimately driven this uh, weird political moment that you're going through. And it's not something that's peculiar to the United States. That's one of the worrying things is it's not peculiar to the United States. It's something which is quite common in advanced industrial societies. It's common, we have it in Britain. And I think this, this great stagnation um, and this sense that people have that their children are not going to be richer than they are, that the economy is stagnant, that everybody's competing for a fixed, stag you know, a fixed pie rather than the pie growing is is something that's driven trump has driven trumpism and it's driven brexit and all the peculiarities that are going on in, in in britain as well um so the question that this book ends up with is 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 america past its peak you know has it has this secret that it had which is the secret of creative destruction uh, been lost, and there's lots of evidence to show that it has the rate of job creation, the rate of company creation is lower now than it was in the 1990s. The, um, the dominance concentration of markets is far greater than that than, than, than it has been for decades, and and, and certainly greater than it is is for. A, uh, a healthy society, um, the rate of unemployment, the rate of pe people dropping dropping out of the um, economy, huge, very high levels of of basically economic inactivity, particularly amongst uh, amongst older men in this country. So there are a lot of very very deep problems. But uh, and one thesis, Robert Gordon's thesis, which is a very profound thesis, he argues that all of the really big um, the, all of the, the, the really big technological innovations have happened with electricity and with motor cars and things like that, and that the current wave of technological innovations that we're having with, with, through Silicon Valley is just, is just too narrow, just too small to create a big productivity 
boom in the past. So once you've got an aging society and, and, and really trivial new innovations, you're going to get stagnation. We don't argue, we don't accept that in this book. What we argue in this book is, in fact, that, there are, that the, the wave of technological innovations that we're seeing at the moment is every bit as big as what you saw in the late 19th century with electricity and, 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 the, and the combustion engine. It's got a massive capacity to, to transform and improve productivity. Um, the reason that we've got these problems is through conscious choices, it's bad policies, bad entitlement policies, bad, re bad regulation policies, bad antitrust policies, that um, we say we're not in a swamp um, uh, uh, that we're trapped in by failing technological innovation. We're in an iron cage of our own making. All we need to do is to turn the key to that cage and we can get out of it, or you can get out of it. I'm not American. The problem is, you, you know, the problem is that the politicians are not going to do that at the We're moment. We're going to have, have a political question and answer in just yeah. a second uh, yeah. uh, from the audience, and you've given yeah. any number of yeah. opportunities. Uh, very, very quickly, what about Brexit? What the hell's going on? <laughs> well, it's, it's my job to, 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 to this is why the, I get paid the big bucks by the economist, is to, is to look at Brexit and see what's happening. I have no idea what's going on. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's completely weird and, and mysterious, and it gets weirder and more mysterious. Uh, by the day, um, but you know, we have um, we leave the EU um, on the 29th of March, which is not very long uh, away. Theresa May produced a wonderful, in her mind, scheme um, for which she negotiated in great detail with the, with the with the EU for what our relationship would be with the EU, and she brought it to, to Parliament, and 230 MPs voted against it. Um, so she's responding to that, what I would regard as a fairly powerful signal, by bringing it back again. Um, Any he, chance for another vote? Uh, well, what's going to happen next week? Um, well, he wants to, another vote. Oh, uh, well, another referendum. Well, that, that's, that's mm. more complicated. What she's, what's going to happen next week on Tuesday is a whole bunch of backbench MPs are going to take, try and take the process out of the hands of the Prime Minister, out of the executive, and give it to the MPs themselves, to Parliament and force the executive, which is a constitutional innovation, force the executive to delay the date that we leave and to hold a series of indicative votes about what we should do to get us out of this. So that is a constitutional coup of a sort of the legislatures against the executive. But so that's a big change. Will the EU change. put up with that? Uh, they, they don't have to, but they probably will, mm -hmm. yeah. And so we might have another vote. At the moment, there probably aren't enough um, votes in Parliament. It has to go through Parliament to have another vote. Um, we might have another vote. Um, and if, if we do have uh, another vote, it will tear the country apart. There will be riots in the streets because people were told in 2016 that they had a vote and that their vote would be final. And now they're being told, well, actually, we're going to think again. Um, so I think it would be appalling for democracy. It would create an enormous amount of friction, and I'm in favour of it. <laughs> because it's the least bad of very, very many bad solutions. Creative you know, we destruction. Don't, yeah, well, there would be a lot of creative <laughs> destruction, destruction, but th there is no good way out of this. It's yeah. an absolute disaster. I think it's time for Q&A, and, uh, and uh, let me turn it over. Thank you very much. My name is Tamara Eskenazi, and you spoke about... Uh, bad antitrust laws. And I was wondering if you could say something about what you think are good antitrust laws and who and how could they come about? 
I can't remember using the phrase bad antitrust laws. I think one of the things that happened in the late 19th, early 20th century in America um, was that you had a great deal of fuss made about antitrust um, by Teddy Roosevelt and various other people. And it didn't really have that much impact in the sense that you got the standard oil broken up, which mattered quite a lot. But in general, in the rest of the American economy, you got massive concentration um, with one, two, three companies um, dominating most areas uh, of economic life. And you got a lot more um, sort of vertical and horizontal um, integration than you'd had before. So actually, despite all the progressive fuss about about antitrust, America became a much more concentrated uh, economy after that. I think bad antitrust was... I mean, the problem is now that we have a, an antitrust tradition that um, has been weakened partly because of the um, enormous sort of assault um, on that tradition in the, in, in the 1980s, but one that is not capable and hasn't begun to think about the, the nature of, you know, what you do in a world of information and networks, and we still haven't, haven't got that. But I think we're beginning, or we were beginning, to get some movement, not necessarily on the, on the, on the IT side, but on, on antitrust in general. Um, because The Economist did a lot of work on the concentration in America and pointed out that America, American capitalism is, is, is exceedingly comp- uh, concentrated, much more concentrated than, than capitalism in most other countries, and that, lev- that, that is beginning to have a malign uh, impact, a malign impact on the, on the country, both in terms of what consumer choice you have, but also in terms, much more importantly, on levels of innovation. So uh, levels of innovation in uh, in a lot of sectors of, of the American economy have been very low. I was airlines, pretty important airline industry, um, in credit cards, pretty pretty small innovation in that. You know, much more innovation in Europe and China in um, electronic payment than than you have you have here. Um, and that was taken up by the Obama White House, um, and they did quite. They produced quite a lot of interesting research on concentration in America, uh, and that stopped under this current president, which is a pity. Hi, my name is Jill Aguilar, and I wanted to hear your thoughts on the role uh, in American capitalism of the millions of people for hundreds of years who were forced to provide free labor for... Yes, thank you for that question. We... um, we didn't talk about uh, about that as we should have done, in in fact. Um, and you know the slavery uh, question, and indeed it was millions of people, um, is obviously an appalling stain on America, um, and it's a peculiar aspect in some ways of the American economy because in the early nineteenth century. Um, slavery was beginning to fade as an economic input into the economy. Um, And um, it was beginning to be perceived as something that wasn't very productive. Um, So Jefferson, to some extent, Washington, to some extent, are beginning to free their slaves. They're certainly not seeing them as the future. And then you get the invention in the early 19th century of the cotton gin, which makes the cotton economy massively more efficient. And as a result of the, 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 the 
production of the cotton gin and the fact that you can you you can deseed cotton much much more quickly, um, the industry begins to grow. So having declined and having having seen the industry decline and having seen the British Empire abolishing the slave trade, um, America doubles down. The South in America doubles down on slavery and slavery uh, and the cotton economy becomes more and more productive and efficient and um, the volume of cotton that's being produced um, increases enormously. So you not only get uh, that, but, but you get an increase in the number of slaves. You get people from, uh, or slaves working in the cotton economy, you get people being dragged down from, from the north, people being moved from domestic labour into the production of cotton. Um, so it's a... It's a, it's a a booming industry, and it's an industry which helps to create a lot of money for a lot of people, and not just in the South. You know, a lot of banks, um, Lehman Brothers being a particularly interesting example of that because they're cotton factors, the, the Lehman Brothers. Um, it, so it, it, it is a stain on America, and it's something that um, obviously is, is, is abolished, but abolished in a very, very odd and uh, difficult way. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say except, but it, I, it's not something that's that, that's not irrelevant to capitalism. It's something that was driven by the the boom, massive global boom in in the cotton industry. Talked about the uh, disparity and the unrest in political systems yep. that are we're experiencing currently, and is do you look at capitalism as being responsible for? a lot of this political disparity because of the socioeconomic disparity between what the top 1% or one-tenth of 1% is earning versus what most of the rest of the population earns. I think that what worries me much more than inequality is economic stagnation. Um, what we've seen is two things happening. One is that um, the rate of productivity growth has slowed down very, very dramatically. Um, much lower now than it was um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And secondly, that most of the fruits of what productivity growth that we've had has gone to a small section of the population. Um, so I would say the most important thing to do is to, to raise the productivity, the rate of productivity, rather than to engage in redistribution uh, that, that would be my solution to the problem. Uh, and I'd also say that inequality is, is, comes in different dimensions. If you have crony capitalism where people are um, extracting a lot of value because of their political connections and getting rich through their political connections and through restricting competition and the rest of it, I think that's unacceptably, uh, unexceptionally a bad thing. But when you have um, inequality that's the product of extremely talented people producing things that everybody wants and getting very rich because they do that. Um, let's say Steve Jobs, let's say Bill Gates. That worries me much, much less. Um, so there's good inequality and bad inequality. One of the things about inequality, it can be a sign of something that's good, which is the creation of things that, that people want. And those things tend to start off very expensive and get a lot cheaper uh, as they're produced on a mass scale. And I think it was... Um, you know, it, it, it was Schumpeter who said that, um, Schumpeter has this point, he says that Queen Elizabeth I had silk stockings. Um, but the genius of capitalism 
is not to provide queens with millions and millions and millions of stockings. The genius of capitalism is to make stockings cheap enough for the average shop girl, that's his phrase, not my phrase, the average shop girl, to buy silk stockings. And that is still what you're getting when people like uh, you know, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates come up with their computers and various devices. Those devices have got a lot cheaper and people, as a result of that, have got uh, a lot better off. Um, and I think, you know, we talk about the stagnant, stagnant wages. Well, in one sense, one of the problems with stagnant wages is it's not the stagnation of the wages because you can buy more Apple computers or you can buy more, buy more television sets with the wages. What's happening is more and more of your wages are going towards education, which is very getting particularly, you know, university education, which is getting much, much, much more expensive, and healthcare, which is getting very much, much more expensive. So, you know, it's not just stagnant wages, it's, it's the inflation of certain high um, certain products which involve certain services, high service areas of the, highly skilled service areas of the economy. Thanks for having the talk. Um, with the tech giants and all of the social media, um, you know, big players coming yep. together, uh, investing in news and media, do you think oh. that the control of uh, corporate media could lead to collaborative propaganda? And um, also, what are your thoughts on the Yellow Vest movement? Br uh, brilliantly um, unrelated questions there, fantastic, yes, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I would say that I'm extremely worried about massive concentration in the power of a few tech companies um, and their ability to, 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 to control the, the, the news. I don't want the news to be controlled by a, a, a small number of organizations. I'm also worried, that's an antitrust issue to some extent, but I'm also worried about the idea of, the, about the filtering that goes on that you and I do, the, 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 the idea that we can select our, our own news, essentially, and that we only get the sort of news that reinforces our, our, our prejudices. That may be inherent in the nature of social media, but it's, it's, it's very dangerous because you get a, a collection of people who only hear things that reinforce their opinions or prejudices. Uh, and so, you know, Badgett, under whose name I write, said that democracy is government by conversation. It should be a civilized, broad-ranging, constant conversation. And now we have government by shouting and government by, 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 by covering your ears and not listening to anything that you don't, you don't agree with. And that's fundamentally illiberal. The yellow vests, um, I'd like to say something anti-French. Um, <laughs> I get the sense with, 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 with Macron that Macron has gone from um, being Mrs. Thatcher in her early creative years when she opened up a sclerotic economy and, 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 and introduced a bit of dynamism into Britain, to being Mrs. Thatcher in her later imperial crazed years when she became crazed with power. He's done that in about four weeks. Um, <laughs> I think he's rather insensitive to the, to, the, to, to the travails of a lot of French people. And France is you know, it's incredibly centralised, and the people who run the country are very arrogant and very cut off from regular people. And most of these yellow vest things, most of it's not happening in Paris, it's happening right across the country. And it's people who feel ignored and, and, and neglected. And I think one of the big dynamics we have in the world at the moment is a sort of war, um, 
metaphorical war, between a sort of meritocratic elite, who are people who've been to smart universities and do cognitively demanding jobs and think they're very, very clever, and the broad masses, the people, people who don't do those sorts of jobs. And that's creating a, a huge amount of tension. That's what lies behind Brexit, is what lies behind Trump, and it's what lies behind the Yellow Vest movements. And we need the cognitive elites to be a little less arrogant and supercilious. Good evening, gentlemen. My name is Neil Rampal, and thank you for the very interesting conversation. Um, you touched briefly on um, automation as a result of, of artificial um, wage floors, right? So, but, but it seems highly possible that the people who are designing autonomous vehicles will eventually succeed, or the people who are designing AI um, that will have applications in, in, in many areas. will put patent clerks maybe out of work or, or some postdocs too. But, um, you know, what, what is, it, it seems like the result of that creative destruction would be a, a change in, in the nature of work, right? People out of work. What is, do you pr predict is capitalism's solution to that other than maybe a, a universal basic income? I'm drawn between two very conflicting emotions. The first is that, you know, people throughout the history of capitalism uh, have predicted that, 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 that the advance of machines will destroy jobs and put everybody out of work um, and create general immiseration. So the Luddites went around smashing the, the looms, smashing the machines. Uh, and that was, you know, basically a foolish thing to do because we introduced the, the, the looms. People in general, living standards rose and they continue to, to rise. But um, one thing that does very much worry me, actually, this is the contrary fear, um, is that once you get um, big advances, which we're, we're currently seeing in, in AI, and they're only going to get bigger, you're going to see large numbers of jobs for professional people being destroyed. So you'll have continuing, probably rising demand for certain forms of service jobs and for, for certain, you know, for, for not just hair cutters, but beauticians and all of that sort of thing that can only be delivered by actual people. But lots of jobs that the cognitive elite, the middle class people, that professionals do, will, will be destroyed very, very, very quickly. I think, because the machines are just very relentless when it comes to, 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 to pattern recognition. They're very fast, they don't get bored, you don't have to feed them, and so they'll just take over all of those, those things. So I think what we're going to see is a great hollowing out of the middle class. People at the very top of the, the people in the upper middle class and the elites will, will do well, um, but people in middling jobs, pattern, dull pattern recognition jobs, will be losing their, their jobs. And historically... Um, it has been the case that when you get um, professional classes seeing their living standards threatened, they tend to be the um, the foot the, 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 the foot soldiers of the ra of the radical right. You saw that I think with with the Nazi movement, it had a disproportionate number of people with with higher degrees, PhDs, and the rest of it. You saw it with the fascist movement in France. So people who expect a certain status and a certain standard of living who see that taken away from them become very, very unstable. Um, and, you know, Aristotle said, you know, in order to have a successful uh, democracy, you need a big, stable middle class. And that middle class is about to be really whacked with uh, technological innovation. So however bad you think the world is now, it's going to get worse. <laughs>
Can I ask just one more question? I, yeah. uh, having failed to ask the question about slavery, which I really yeah. appreciated, um, I have to ask another question. During the Eisenhower years, yeah. the top tax rate was 90%, and the country was extraordinarily productive. Now we have all these tax cuts. Uh, it's 38%, I think, and now it's going down to 35% as the top. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be leading to any kind of uh, productivity, but rather to this extraordinary gap between those with the wealth and those who don't have the wealth. Why isn't taxation a way to redistribute income in such a way that you don't have people come down the street with pitchforks? Um, I, I think there are, taxation addresses the issue of distribution. And that may be a legitimate thing to do, but I'm not sure that taxation addresses either negatively or positively the impact of the issue of productivity. I think there are other things that we need to do to, um, in, to, to address the issue of productivity. Um, so that's a philosophical question rather than, rather than the economic and practical question. It is the case, I think, though, that even you know, during, during this golden era, we call it the golden era in the, in, in the book of, uh, of post-war capitalism, which was a stable managerial capitalism, that was partly artificially created by the fact that America had this huge dominance uh, over the rest of the world, which had been destroyed by, by, by war. Um, but a lot of what happened then was enormous amount of informal sorts of sorts of pay. So CEOs, well, they probably get a lot of informal pay now. But then, they, 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 even if they were paying very high rates of taxes, they got got pay in 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 other ways. Well, why not ways. have taxation now? Why cut taxes rather than increasing them on the people who have? Well, money? I mean, I'm actually agnostic about about personal tax. I mean, I think in. in, in the, the corporate tax issue, which, which was central to what, what Trump did, was actually a very sensible thing to do because America had a very high rate of corporate taxes. And what happened as a result of that was that people just kept vast money mountains outside the United States. So it's the corporation uh, yeah. leaders themselves then who were taking all that money to pay themselves rather than... Well, no, they were just keeping the money. I think they were keeping the money almost in banks. They were just keeping it offshore in... In, 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 I, th I think Apple at one point had a trillion dollars uh, offshore, vast amounts of money. And that money could have been productively uh, invested. The important thing is that capital should be invested productively rather than either just kept offshore or, or, or frittered away. Um, so uh, I think there are various things that you can do um, about um, productivity which aren't connected with the personal taxation rates. I could go on for a week. Yes. I could go on even longer really than that, fun. I'm sure. But before we do close, I'd like to uh, thank KCRW for joining us and co-presenting this program, part of our Critical Thinking with War and Only series. Also, thank all of you for joining us tonight. It was great to have an overflow crowd here tonight for this conversation. Uh, please stick around, grab a drink with us out at the reception. Both of our speakers will be out at the reception tonight, so you can keep asking questions. Also, our favorite local bookseller, Skylight Books, is here tonight. They're selling copies of Adrian Wildridge's new book, Capitalism in America, A History, co-authored with Alan Greenspan. And finally, a big round of applause for our speakers tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.